Hi, I'm Ruth Fitzpatrick. Welcome to this episode of Love Beyond Romance. Delighted to have your company. In this episode, I'm exploring Eric Fromm's The Art of Loving. A book written in 1956, yet much of which is timeless. By the same token, some elements are outdated. And that's probably the biggest critique of the work, which is really minor. Now for From, the key sort of notion of love that he's speaking to and just radically transcends with his own broad, rich notion of mature love is his sense that love is defined by an object. Love relates to a sense of falling in love and that search and that longing to be loved. And while I do not wish to condemn either of those very natural, intrinsic experiences from paints in somewhat in dialectic with those notions of love being quite passive almost very individual he's puts huge emphasis on love as being something very productive but of course, when we hear productive, you know, we think of getting lots done in the day and lots of jobs done and things like that. But from his notion of productiveness, his notion of activity is really central to how he describes love, is not related to externals as such, not related to outcomes as such. But as he described, probably in the, on the page where I was first really hooked into the book because he discusses meditation in a way that I'll mention in a moment, that activity is really that which draws upon and also cultivates our greatest inner powers. He draws on Spinoza here in this description of activity and how accurately he does that or not, I can't say because I'm not at all well versed in Spinoza's work. But the key point here in his regards to love and activity is that it's not something that just happens to you, but something that is extremely difficult, extremely rare to, to master and cultivate and yet imminently achievable through developing these intrinsic powers. And from is not talking about kind of sort of psychic powers. It's not, he's not particularly into a kind of magical world. He's very much a, a humanist, almost a mystical humanist though alongside a Marxist and a psychoanalyst and a philosopher, you know. So there's a lot of different, interesting, rich, even contradictory threads there, but they all sit together in very interesting ways. So this activity, which you could say is centred on the giving, okay, but it's not, again, it's not action, it's not giving that is motivated or impetus to buy a kind of compulsion. Right? And his example when he first introduces more technically this notion of activity versus passivity is meditation. And hence why I really chimed in at this page because uh, it's so often thought that meditation is quite inactive, passive um practice or task and maybe this elements of that but as from very rightly points out the attitude of concentrated meditation is the highest activity there is an activity that he calls of the soul which is possible only under the condition of inner freedom and independence 
even though meditation is often thought of not doing any and, and passive, and you contrast that with the modern activity referring to the use of energy for the achievement of external aims, which can, as he points out, often be motivated by greed, social pressure, purely deeply ingrained habit. There's actually not much activity going on there. There's habit, there's compulsion, there's overt or subtle force, external force. Okay, but this activity refers to the use of one's inherent powers, regardless of what external change is brought about. Ultimately, the greatest external changes would be brought about, but that's not the measure of what this activity is. very much a measure of the degree of intention, of awareness, effort. So stepping away from that example of meditation, yet it parallels very much with the kind of concentrated effort that from thinks about when he is talking about the cultivation of love. And I don't want to make that sound arduous and another burdensome thing that's impossible to live up to because in reality, cultivating this mature love is the ultimate answer to the problem of existence, if you like, the problem of being human, which from sees and again here we have kind of an interesting integration of his psychoanalytic influence and kind of Jewish mysticism where the problem of existence is as far as from is concerned is our experience of of separation of isolation and the way to overcome that being at one or interpersonal fusion. And though he does seek to bring love into a much bigger field than simply another object, another human, to love and be loved by, that doesn't take away the fact that he that, that there is a whole range of different objects of relations that do require different forms of activity and he goes into that in some detail and values those but so this need to overcome our sense of separation our anxiety of aloneness is sort of the broad atmosphere or environment in which from sets a stage as the human being seeking needing love that this cultivation of this mature love is that which can truly transcend that feeling of aloneness and that being not at all dependent upon how many friends, whether we are in a, in a formal relation, sexual relations, etc., etc. All of that is very much secondary, not irrelevant, but secondary to what's important in our ability to cultivate love and that being the answer to the problem of existence. But of course, we, we go about this um, attempt to find at one or, or fusion or unity in limited ways, some highly destructive, some quite productive and from talks about, for example, achieving various forms of collective orgiastic states. Now, sexual experience is one of those, but what he's initially talking about really is pre-modern societies and the collective kind of rituals that they would have where they would enter a trance through dancing, through music, sometimes through taking you know, various natural substances that would produce altered states of awareness but that sense of that being a very collective ritual involving those various different sensual elements was one way that humans in a relatively healthy way could transcend momentarily that sense of separateness 
Now, we have forms of those that have emerged in modern, postmodern society, of course, but by and large, they're not, they're, they're somewhat outcast, they're suppressed as acceptable activities. And speaking of the way that those things operate more in modern and postmodern studies would involve synthetic drugs. And he does, from does talk about alcohol and drugs as another means, far more destructive means, that we seek to transcend this loneliness or, or a sense of separation. But the problem with, with alcohol and drugs is that when the effects of those things wear off for the individuals, the sense of separateness, of aloneness is just radically heightened. So this is his analysis, the, the core focus being love, but his analysis to why people would be would move into drug addiction. For him, on a psychoanalytic frame, it's that need for love, it's that need for unity, it's that need for a sense of collectiveness. Sex, he puts, sort of sex without love, sex addiction, very similar again. And again, producing a kind of negative outcome because when that moment of union is passed, this is different when there's a deep love involved because there's that union that sexual union just then goes on to enrich the broader life of love and union between two people. But if it's a kind of a sex that's based on a kind of addiction or as a need to overcome this sense of aloneness, often what can happen then again is a form of shame or distaste or hatred to oneself or, or the other because, again, that sense of aloneness is amplified. Now, I don't want to sound sort of um, archaic in terms of morals around sex here. This is what from saying in the 1950s. I support, though, the, the notion that if, you know, one is seeking to escape this sense of aloneness unconsciously through the sex act without there being a deeper love, that that's not going to produce ultimately an abiding sense of union or alonement. That's not to condemn all of those acts in themselves, but if we want to be aware of what's driving them and what they're truly achieving, I think from puts forth some reasonable points. And a couple of other things in this, in this, um, you know, our inadequate attempts to try and overcome a sense of separateness. Conformity just at large, you know, social conformity. And again, this comes in sort of certain element critiques of capitalism, consumer society. That's part of the way that we try to overcome the aloneness, very understandably. Creative activity is one of the more wholesome ways to transcend this aloneness that Fromm talks about. And finally, he, he also talks about a romantic or erotic love which again in itself could be part of a broader mature love, but if it doesn't contain those elements, which we'll go into talking about that from describes as a much more broader love that you know kind of reaches far beyond a single individual inclusive of ourselves and another individual, but reaches far beyond that, then romantic love can end up very easily being simply an expansion of one's own ego in through the two beings interacting and easily, as we see so happen, easily those two individuals actually gradually becoming estranged and alienated from each other because of a whole host of projected ideals that again don't bring don't bring this sense that this thing that we're searching for because entirely unrealistic expectations are put upon that. Far too great a weight is put upon just that individual and just that relationship. You know, it reminds me of another point that Fromm makes, which is that 
He thinks we approach this approach this act of love in that sense of romantic love. There's nothing that we approach with greater expectations and yet has a sort of you know greater disapproval rating if you like. It's not to say that we are all um disenchanted or or bitter about our relations but we we all know that they require huge efforts and we all know that um you know while there's great great bliss and joy to be found in them um there can also be great effort and if too much expectation is put upon that single relation it's very easy that we actually become alienated not just from each other but from ourselves And so without criticising all those things, Fromm says some are more destructive than others, but they're all partial to to achieving a truly interpersonal union, a fusion with another individual that then expands or an expansive sense of love that then is filtered through a particular individual. That... That is where this sense of separation and isolation can ultimately be overcome. Now, without wanting to begin too much in the negative, we, we do spend a bit of time, particularly at the beginning of Fromm's book, kind of discussing what love isn't, what masks it, what morphs it. So before getting into the um, more juicy and optimistic and really, really tangible, I think, um, sense of what love is, he also talks about forms of immature love, which he calls fusion without integrity. And this section, I mean, this was the second section actually that really grabbed me. And I think I, I could really see how it operates in a much more subtle way than we normally think about it. He calls this symbiotic union. So we're two people kind of fused, but it's not in a mature love. The first is a passive form where someone escapes that sense of isolation by perceiving in the other sort of that all life exists within them that their sense of their greatness is amplified and that that one's own life is really enabled by that that other being and that's that's how one gets one's sense of life one's sense of union right and he I haven't used immediately the terms that he uses because they're immediately related to, I think, what we've ended up thinking about them purely in sexual terms, and that's masochism and sadism. Maybe not. Maybe that's just me. But so masochism in this symbiotic union, this unwholesome unions, is where really, you know, you're kind of invested in another being, everything. And in that process, though, in that process, you lose certain integrity. And now when Fromm talks about integrity, he's not meaning it so much in an ethical sense, but that would come by extension. He's really talking about a certain individuality. And I might discuss toward the end, you know, some some issues or problems with that. But that's sort of a root mode Again, drawing from the psychoanalysis, I think about a sense of a wholeness, a sense of a of a, of a proper human being as having a kind of individuality and a kind of mature freedom, which I can see a lot of value in that. So these this um, masochism, this passivism within a symbiotic union, is where you kind of lose that. And the other form, sadism, is the active form where someone escapes their sense of aloneness by making another part and parcel of themselves and are constantly inflating, enhancing their own sense of self by incorporating that person into them that worships them. And it seems quite crude on the surface and we've probably all observed um, unpleasantly gross forms of this, but I think it operates a lot more subtly 
too in relations and it's something to be really aware of I think um, in taking away your that sense of your own cultivation of power and view and life force so from says this is a fusion without integrity and that brings us this question of integrity brings us to as I've said quite a central point where Mature love, as far as from is concerned, is, is union under the condition of preserving one's integrity, one's individuality. Okay, and I'm not going to problematize that just yet, but we will, I will go into that, questioning that a little bit down the track. And at this point, he is also saying this is love is an active power in man which breaks through the walls, which separate human beings from human beings and unites him with others, making him overcome this sense of separation and isolation. Yet it permits him to be him or herself, to retain this integrity. It's this paradox of two or more beings becoming one and yet remaining individual. So that's that sense when we're talking about activity arising and such as meditation as he puts it being the highest form of activity arising from a space of inner freedom well it may or may not have achieved that but in an ideal sense it's it's that we can sit alone with ourselves right and that love that we can love and this comes through more and more as as i unpack the content that to achieve these qualities of mature love this sense of inner freedom where we don't need others' love and nor do we project our own lens upon others. We don't need others to be what we need them to be is really quite important to Fromm's notion of love. And while I'm, while I'm saying that, I know there can maybe there's a lot of problems with that. Maybe that's too unrealistic. Maybe that's too removed from what actually goes on. But look, I'll unpack what's there and would love to hear your thoughts about what you think is the strength or weakness of Fromm's approach to love. And this is where Fromm really launches himself, I think, beautifully into this notion of love as activity, which I've already discussed somewhat, where, again, it's not a falling for it's primarily an act of production and giving. Okay, and for the productive character, someone that is deeply engaged in cultivating their awareness, their self-awareness, their inner freedom, giving is not uh, something that comes as a burden. It's not something that's obliged from external sources or forces, but it's as from writes the highest expression of potency i think is a beautiful notion that giving is the highest expression of potency giving of my strength my wealth and it doesn't mean that in a material sense necessarily my power and that this experience of giving and this is where love rather than being a burden this mature love is really beautiful is actually heightens my sense of vitality heightens my potency and sense of joy. Of course, we don't want to be giving with that motivation to get that for ourselves. That would be really counterproductive. But I'll point to the subtleties that from mentions about giving in a moment that removes those problems. And again, it's about this inner freedom. It's about this personal individual completeness integrity but what is all this giving what is one giving from says we're giving we're giving our aliveness giving that which is alive in you to others giving of what gives you joy of what is of your interest of your understanding of your knowledge of your sadness of your joy it's this sense of giving of your life your aliveness which then enhances the aliveness of another 
and they're producing a kind of multiplying joy between people. And through that act of giving that something further is born, something that grows beyond the people even just engaged in that exchanging of aliveness. As I said, whether that's understanding, whether that's experiences, joys, insights, it's giving your aliveness. And that, that is incredibly powerful. And that produces love. Which, and this emphasis on joy and giving, I feel like he makes a valuable point where he says even though it's known that people that are generally poor give more, there's something about poverty when someone is so materially poor that it, it limits them from giving. And I'm not to say they can't give in many, many other ways besides material, but it's a sense in which they're limiting in giving also takes away a great deal of their joy, can do so. So within the context, within the foundation of this giving to others, this, this joy, this aliveness, which is produced by all of these other qualities that Fromm is talking about in regards to being able to love. And then he goes on to stress, though, that the ability to love as an act of giving, the ability to give, which is truly an act of love, because we, we all know many gifts that are not, um, cannot be truly characterised as that, obviously presupposes or reflects an attainment of a predominantly productive orientation. And again here, meaning this productiveness in a very specific way, not the way we normally use it. A person that's overcome dependency, a person that's overcome narcissism, which again he uses in a technical way which I will define soon. Someone that's overcome the wish or need to exploit others and someone that has acquired faith in their own human powers and a courage to rely on those powers for the attainment of their goal. The degree that these qualities are lacking is actually afraid of giving. You know, so this ability, and look, who who has achieved these things? They're actually very hard to achieve, but to be aware of refining these qualities is invaluable, I think, refining the positive one and, and gradually reducing the negative one, if you want to see it like that. But this overcoming of dependency, narcissism, subtle involvement in exploiting others, and that has acquired faith in their own capacities. These are some of the things that make this giving a central feature of love as a true mature love, as a true offering of benefit. And within that context then, this active, inc- this active element of love from grounds in four qualities, which will be familiar to everyone, which are care, responsibility, respect and knowledge. And he says some interesting things about all those points. Nearly on everything he mentions, I think he often brings a sort of um, slightly different angle to common terms, common notions, some which may appeal more than others. And some of the themes he talks about here will come up in later points that I mention. But they all encompass this sense that love is an active concern for the life and growth of that which we love. And all of these descriptions have at their heart this sense that this activity of love comes from a place of inner freedom, not from a need or a compulsion of our own, of our own personal needs. So, for example, with respect, it's highlighted that growth and care of an individual, i.e. this active concern of the life and growth, is understood by removing our own view of what we think we would like the other person to be and the ability to contemplate them and their needs outside of that, outside of what he 
describes as narcissism, drawing upon Freud's definition, which isn't the, you know, sort of, and I think we tend to think of narcissism as vanity. The way it's discussed in this book is that it's the inability to see others outside of our own frame. It's the continuation of seeing others purely in the sense of either frustrating or fulfilling our desires and our needs or our fears. You know, it's, let's face it, it's really quite hard to overcome entirely, but so rewarding, actually so putting you at ease to see others outside of that. All of these qualities require that inner freedom from things such as narcissism. To respect someone is to see them as they are, rather than trying to subtly dominate or exploit what you would like them to be in all of those cases. Because in the mature character, uh, again using Fromm's terms, the mature character, the one able to love, is able to transcend the concern, transcend the concern for themselves, to see the other person in their own terms. Okay, and things such as love, in regards to knowledge as an activity of love, knowing the other. How do we know the other if we can't truly look beyond ourselves? And again, he brings in some interesting Jewish mysticism at this point in regards to knowledge, where he says that knowledge is an aspect, which is an aspect of love, doesn't stay at the periphery, peripheral knowledge of others, but it penetrates to the core it really penetrates to the core of another. And this notion of periphery versus centeredness or core, he really describes as central to two beings relating in the sense of in mature love is relating from the core of one's being, the centeredness of one's being, rather than the periphery. Now we all might have either a strong notion of what this core centeredness might be and quite a palpable experience or you know other frameworks it's like well what's that core what, what is that really is there is there a single thing you can point to as that but that's a framework through which he talks about knowledge in relation to an activity of love as others but even goes beyond that to say that when this act of fusion with another and with all, in fact, is happening, that I come to know you, I come to know myself, I come to know everybody, and yet I know nothing as well. So while his approach to Fromm's is very rationalistic, and I don't mean that negatively, I mean in the sense that we have to transcend to a degree certain affects, certain passions, certain compulsions, certain predilections to be able to truly love another he also at points at points moves beyond that rationality into a kind of mysticism into a kind of sense of at one minute in union that can only be found from that transcending that so this sense that when we can penetrate to the core of another we come to truly know them we come to truly know ourselves and yet within that space nothing is known it's a rich and beautiful paradox. about the mastery of love 
the mastery of the art of love, that element of Fromm's book which he sees as more practical and what I've covered now is more theoretical, yet gives a lot of provisions that actually you can't give any directly practical advice on how to love because you can see the depth of his approach means that each individual really needs to cultivate deeply a whole array of qualities um, which I still hope don't feel beyond grasp. Before I get into discussing you know the art on practice of love more specifically Fromm does talk about objects of love you know which are categories of different forms of that that different relations in which love takes place Um, even though he's problematized that being a singular kind of notion of love he does speak quite a lot he makes some interesting discussions about motherly and fatherly love okay there's quite a lot of that actually this is psychoanalysis after all now i'll highlight that some of that does feel quite outdated and yet he does say that these notions of father and mother love he employs in as a kind of Jungian archetype or um, Weber's um, ideal types in the sense that that not every one, every woman is involved in motherly love, every father involved in fatherly love. They're just a framework. And there's other elements where the way genders are discussed can seem quite outdated. But, you know, it was written in the 50s, so we'll give a little bit of leeway on that front. I still... There's still points in there around mothering which ha- have been of quite of interest to me. And um, so I'll discuss a little bit about these different objects of love before we then get into the mastery, the art of loving. In discussing motherly and fatherly love, for example, he sees motherly love as ultimately unconditional, that a being knows that they're loved purely for being. And obviously he does privilege this in many regards. But then he talks about fatherly love as love which is gained through achieving of things. And now that form of love has been quite critiqued in our recent culture. I think he he kind of points out that there's pros and cons in both. And I think to put those categories under mother and father is a bit problematic. But the bit that piqued my interest around things to do with motherly love again we can take issue with this but he says that actually caring for an infant child is basic nature makes the parallels with some animals and things even animals care for their young but what is really the quality of motherly love in a mature in a wholesome in and a mother that is his characteristics of inner freedom is actually the ability to allow the child to grow beyond it if you like to go outside of it this is kind of opposite from what he's actually often talking about in the sense of trying to get away from our separateness okay but this thing that that to be a truly mature, a maturely loving mother, and by all means father, is knowing how to allow that process for that, I guess is this kind of individuation to take place because at that early time, you know, there's no separation between the mother and the child. She's growing inside her womb, you know, and in those early months and years, you know, she's her life, her source of life, nourishment and everything. This mature mothering is to be willing to foster that process uh, as wisely as possible. I can see valuable points in that and it's an interesting point to consider. Also that mature motherly love provides not just milk but honey too. And, you know, he'll at times throughout the book refer to biblical passages. But nearly always he'll analyse these biblical passages in terms of kind of psychoanalytic dynamics around mother-father and things like that. Again, at this point, draws a quote relating to milk and honey. Milk is this basic care, which I don't think that we should just assume is easy because it's not. But it's a sense that The mother provides this milk, provides this basic physical and emotional care. But what is much harder to provide is the honey, which 
Fromm describes it as a love of life. It refers to biophilia a little bit, as in mother's, a mother's love of life. Let's face it, a father's, let's face it, anyone around the child. But in the early years, the, the parents are so intrinsic to the child. A mother's love of life is as infectious as her anxiety. So if you can instill a love of life in your child, this is one of the most invaluable gifts of motherhood that you can give, according to Fromm. Now, a little bit of point of concern here is sort of an extra burden. There's so many pressures and we, we have such high standards for our mothering and quite possibly fathering in many cases as well. Because, you know, you, you can't force yourself to love life and you can't, you can't exude love of life if you don't have it. But it's a, it's, I think it's a valuable consideration again. You know, that these things are an invaluable thing to give to your child. We're often thinking about, um, you know, how can we make sure that they're successful and that they're provided for, but what about love of life? What about your aliveness? Going back to that central gift, and I guess that's it, giving your aliveness. Don't worry about giving something, something else that you're not or some, you know, this whole range of specific qualities we, we might think we need to imbue or embody, but simply the love of life whatever that might mean which doesn't have to mean attachment to material life life force he also talks about brotherly love some antiquated language again which is really a christian kind of um, notion of loving all human beings to love those who do not serve a purpose to us only in the love of those who do not serve a purpose to us love begins to unfold to love the stranger to learn to be able to relate not from periphery periphery and how that exacerbates so much difference but to somehow relate from center to center to those that do not serve us a purpose and that that is where love unfolds and that's this notion of brotherly love i think to call it universal or or human love Really interesting, valuable section on self-love, which again at this point he has dialogue with sort of historical notions of that being evil or highly problematic, which I think what, what he's responding to there is people's notion that a self-love that's actually that narcissistic, selfish love where one's own self is put above everyone else, whereas in the context of the type of love that Fromm's talking about, of course it doesn't involve any of those things. And so he says, of course, this love that we're talking about applies to you. How could it not? How could this love differentiate away from yourself? You know, make some really interesting points about selfishness. With a person that's selfish, is not about them loving themselves too much as loving themselves too little. And in fact, you'll probably find usually hates himself, herself. So this point of self-love is crucial in this this whole thing. And then yet you need to be wary of what he calls veiled selfishness, which is his sense of this performed unselfishness. And again, unfortunately, he prefers that often it can be a mother, but where there's this entrenched over-concern that actually masks this inability to find this deeper, mature impersonal if you like or this love that comes from a place of inner freedom and finally this in this section he has an extended and very interesting discussion about dare i say love of god it's quite complicated to unpack in this short space but ends very much with a mystical notion where he says love of God is neither knowledge of God in thought nor the thought of one's love of God, but purely the act of experiencing the oneness with God. So again, this deep unity, this deep mystical unity. And yet, I should say, within that and within all of these Jewish mystical influences, you know, he states it. He personally doesn't believe in the notion of God, okay, and that it's a historically contingent concept. 
So take that as you will. Take the other notions as you will. I think it is hard. He's a psychoanalytic Marxist mystical humanist. But you make of all of that as you will. Now I'd like to move to this notion of love as the mastery of an art. And in introducing this section, Fromm points out that any art has certain general requirements which are also equally relevant to love. But first and foremost, if one is to take an art, to make something into an art and to master it, it has to be a supreme concern. I, in a sense, that a great deal of one's life must be devoted or related to it if we are to reach that kind of level of mastery. That in order to master an art, a great number of other things that don't directly relate to that art are required. And that one must imbue one's whole life this is in the case of love with those qualities of love. It's not enough to kind of do it in one area. Again, I'm sorry to put such strain on this, but in practice you see how true that is. So these general qualities that Fromm talks about, and as always he makes some really interesting points on them, that he says is necessary for any art is discipline, concentration and patience and all these things you know we've had a massive blossoming of, of uh, human potential movement you know since Fromm's time so in a sense these qualities are talked about a lot and yet again he makes some really interesting observations in regard to them one point he makes about discipline is I think really valuable that our Western concept of discipline is that if something is supposed to be painful or, or difficult, if it is good, you know, that discipline must be painful. Whereas he points out in the East, there's sort of a notion that if something is to be adopted, of course there's an initial resistance, but ultimately should be quite agreeable. It actually feels good. And to focus a bit more on that element of the discipline required that we can't just do something when we're in the mood for it if we want to master it, you know, and that it's something that really needs to pervade one's life. He makes many other points about that, but there's a lot in the area of discipline out there. Two, a couple of really interesting points on concentration, though. That the most important step in learning to concentrate Perhaps the difficulty of it, Fromm says, is to learn to be alone with oneself. And obviously that means, and he refers to meditation here as one example, but that means not necessarily doing anything, not listening to the radio, not smoking, not drinking, but just, just being alone with oneself. And that that is in a sense what concentration requires and then produces but then moves on, bringing back to the talk of love, is that to be able to concentrate, i.e. what we've just said means to be able to be alone with oneself, and this ability is precisely a condition for the ability to love. So concentration, aloneness, and the ability to love, they're probably not three things you normally immediately pass altogether, but you can see the richness in there and how it relates to many of the other themes he's talked about in terms of this independence, in terms of being able to develop the qualities to transcend, for example, even subtle forms of that narcissism, to be able to really pierce into another person's world and what can really benefit them requires that concentrated quality of aloneness of inwardness and depth which is that that sense of aloneness is increasingly hard to find for obvious reasons 
And another point along the line of concentration, where he talks about being concentrated in everything one does. Again, kind of pre-seeing the mindfulness movement here. You know, that when you're doing something, you're doing that. It makes some interesting points again about how we, we tend to be so busy but never really doing one thing fully and therefore becoming very tired but not being able to sleep. All of these interesting paradoxes of modern society. He says to be concentrated in relation to others means primarily being able to listen. You know, and this we see obviously is seeming to be harder and harder in our divisive world, but to be concentrated in relating to others means to be able to listen and that we so rarely do that. I mean, he claims that one of the reasons we don't is we feel too exhausting, you know, whereas to not listen, to always be prefiguring and to be mostly listening to ourselves and leaping to conclusions without hearing from that centred place to understand more deeply, even if that person isn't speaking from that centred place. That's what a concentratedness in relation to lovingly relating to others, that ability he brings in there. And there's interesting some biographical details at the end where one of his former students talks about that, you know, and how his deep sense of his listening ability in relating to her. And finally, in this um, section, which he does go, again, really interesting into whole range of other qualities such as humility, reason, faith, talking about irrational faith versus rational faith and all of these different qualities required for the specific art of loving. The other he mentions very importantly, which I've raised again, is the overcoming of narcissism. And that as the main prerequisite for developing the art of love. And then the, once having done that, using reason, he's a rationalist, to be able to truly see what being loving would be in that context. And he says the emotional element of rationalism is humility. So that kind of openness to see and to understand that my picture of a person's behaviour is narcissistically distorted. And that my that person's reality exists regardless of my interests, needs and fears. So again, that overcoming of na- narcissism through a, a blend of humility and reason and that our ability to love, that is central to that. It seems really quite obvious. It seems like, yes, of course, but putting that in practice and learning that just like you would really want to learn a certain brushstroke if you were learning to paint or you know, or, or to, to beautifully sand if you're a carpenter, um, to do a, an incredible headstand um, or a sana position if you're mastering the art of hatha yoga, to, to practice that and practice that for, from is central to this ability to love and is part of this then activity and productiveness in cultivating a kind of character and entire outlook of love. What I haven't talked about as specifically, which is there a lot throughout the book, particularly in the second half, and as I said, all very relevant, if not greatly heightened, is Fromm's critique of capitalism and its influence upon the nature and behaviour of human beings particularly in relation to love. Its qualities and impact on man generally is a feature of a lot of his other work, but then he brings that in, particularly in the second half of the work. I haven't addressed that in depth, but what I do want to point out is to say that it's not just human beings and some intrinsic selfishness as to why love is incredibly difficult and yet there's internal things but he really points out that this difficulty is radically amplified in the context of this capitalistic society and consequently this love is a lost art and consequently few of us 
witness someone with a high degree of mature love and therefore compounding the problem because if we've never seen if we've never felt but in rare instances mature forms of love how can we embody it maybe you've been lucky enough to maybe there's more mature love now than in from's times maybe less what do you think he does conclude by addressing this quite specifically in saying that important and radical changes in our social structure are necessary if love is to become a social and not a highly individualistic marginal phenomenon. It is by necessity a marginal phenomenon in present day Western society, not so much because people's particular jobs do not permit a loving attitude, but because the spirit of a production-centered, commodity-greedy society is such that few people can defend themselves successfully against it. And that at its heart, the principles of capitalistic society are at odds with the principles of mature love. If man and woman are able to love, it must be put in a supreme place. You know, and the economic machine, he says, must serve humans rather than them serving it. Very clear discussion about the impact of capitalism on our ability to love. And yet the whole book involves many ways, I think, that can enable us to consider how to be more loving in our own life without completely uprooting capitalism, yet maybe the book will help inspire that too. There are some issues with outdated modes of gendered language. There's one statement in the book which I just would advise scratching out, which in my copy is on page 31. I won't mention it. It's, I think, just um, a reflection of Fromm's time, the views that he would reconsider in this day and age. This emphasis on the individual, clearly a psychoanalytic emphasis and the natural common understanding that we have in western society is there too much emphasis on this sense of individual does that does there uh, an autonomous individual exist so clearly as that could there be more emphasis on on receptivity as a gift as a way of love sure you know but in terms of the context of when this book is written, the various and rich influences from Jewish mysticism, a lot of emphasis on, on it, one and unity, and at times alongside the emphasis on rationality and, and humanism, rich understanding, if not inter- at times outdated, of, of the impacts of capitalism on our nature and our ways of relating and in our ability to cultivate love. So though from as a philosopher, as in a social theorist coming just before post-structuralism and post-modernism, um, somewhat rejected after a little bit of time with the Frankfurt School as not being radical enough, he's not necessarily a, a social theorist that is really trendy or popular at this point in time. But I think this book, with all of those rich different influences, managed to really convey a notion of love very much worth considering. And having covered quite a bit already, I would love to hear your thoughts on it and hope that my conveying of it has enabled some contemplation in you. And if not, get the book yourself and have a read. Thanks so much for listening. Please tune in to more podcasts from Arate House at aratehouse.com.au and look forward to hearing your responses to this. (laughs) 